Thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. So where are we right now? Right now, we are in the four senses of Scripture. We've covered the literal sense. And by way of reminder, I'll tell you that the Catechism of the Catholic Church teaches us there are four senses by which we may interpret Scripture in an appropriate way. The literal sense, which is the sense that was intended by the author, and I spent two lectures on this. I'm not going to go over it again. And there are the three spiritual senses which illuminate and help us understand the literal sense. The allegorical sense, which is a sense that pertains to Christ. The anagogical sense, which is a sense that pertains to the church and to Mary. And the moral sense, the sense that pertains to us. By the way, in those Bible studies, please don't be selfish. Take notes and share what you learn with others. For if it is true that the one who sings prays twice, the one who takes notes understands twice. All right? I really do encourage you because otherwise you will not be able to absorb what I'm going to be throwing at you. All right? It's going to come fast and furious because we don't have time to slow down to the level that we need to. Otherwise, we'll be with, within, with this Bible study for the next three years. And that might be a tad long. So, a word to the wise. And also, um, please bring a Bible with you. So, today what, what I want to do is focus on the allegorical sense. But, but, but before I do that, a word of caution. There is a limit to the spiritual sense. Specifically, we cannot draw doctrine from the spiritual sense. St. Thomas Aquinas is very clear on that. He states that <clears throat> the literal sense is alone can't... It, any argument, especially in regards to doctrine, must be drawn from the literal sense alone. And that pertains especially to our Mariology, our understanding of the role of Mary. I can't use the spiritual sense, the um, anagogical sense, the sense that pertains to Mary as a proof point for doctrine. I can't do that. I can do it as a way to illustrate and help understand the doctrine on Mary. Which brings me to a very important point. As a Catholic, I do not need to do that. Because my faith does not rest in Scripture alone. It rests in the Church. And once we've established that the Church 
holds the authority to explain and defend the truth that we received through scripture and tradition, I don't need to, to base every doctrine specifically or explicitly on scripture. It's always contained, but it not, need not be explicit. So for instance, when we consider the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception, or the doctrine of the, of the Assumption of Our Lady, I, I need not necessarily prove it all from Scripture. However, once it's established infallibly, I can draw upon the anagogical sense to illustrate it, to make it clearer, as we will do next lecture. Right? I wanted to make sure we all understand that there is a limit to the spiritual sense, and we have to be very careful. One more point. This approach that I am that I am presenting to you means that when we read scripture, it isn't enough to kind of read it and be imbibed by the meaning. Scripture doesn't work this way. It isn't as if I'm just going to read it, oh yeah, I understand it. It takes work. And it takes us to, to discipline ourselves so when we read scripture, we're careful to understand it according to the four senses. Within the context of the teaching of the magisterium, within the context of the teachings of the saints, and the whole Catholic context. So it takes, therefore, a good understanding of what the church teaches for us also to understand scripture. One last point. You heard me often harp upon the following point. I'm not doing Bible study so we become Bible experts. That's not my intent. Never. The intent of a Bible study is for us to become better at living our faith and ultimately to become saints. The intent of the Bible study is to teach us not so much about Scripture than it is to teach us about Christ and His Church. And I've told you many times that the way you know that your spiritual life is growing is if your moral life is getting disciplined. There's one thing for me to talk to you about the Immaculate Conception, to talk to you about Christ and Scripture, it is an entirely different thing to talk about contraception, sexuality, divorce, marriage, moral issues. It is in the moral sphere that you prove your faith. Now, you might ask me, where are you getting that stuff from? Well, I'm getting it from the Pope. Our first Pope, for that matter, St. Peter. Here's what he says in his first letter. In the first letter of St. Peter, he states the following. Verse 3 and following. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By his great mercy we have been born anew to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and to an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Okay, now, to an inheritance. Now, let me ask this question. Who inherits? Children. Children, right? Children inherit. So, we are children of who? God. So, God is our? Uh-huh. Now, if you live in a house and you have a good father, what do you think he would do if you're, let's say, five years old and you decided it would be a good idea for you to eat a pound of candy? Do you think your father will let you do that? No, right? Okay. Keep that in mind. 
your father is a good father, not because he tells you, not only because he tells you stories, read your stories at bedtime, he's a good father because he disciplines you. Right? Next point. Your inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven. St. Peter is very clear. In heaven. Not here. In heaven. That's consoling. It's kept in heaven for you. Not here. Now, for you who by God's power and guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. Now listen carefully. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while you may have to suffer various trials. You may have to suffer various trials so that the genuineness of your faith, most preci more precious than gold, may redound to praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ at the apocalypsis of Jesus Christ. Right? So, what he's basically saying is, when you, are a, when you are the son and daughter of God the Father, you better buckle up, because you're going to have to live a, a moral life that the world will not approve of. And you're doing it, not because you want to gain glory for yourself, but to glorify Jesus Christ. You're doing it for Christ. It is the love of Christ that impels you and I to do what we have to do. He adds also, and that's the important part, without having seen him, you love him. Without having seen him, you love him. Observe, he does not elaborate on the point. He assumes that we know that. That without seeing him, we love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him, and rejoice with honorable and exalted joy as the outcome of your faith, as the outcome of your faith, you obtain the salvation of your souls. As the outcome of your faith, you obtain salvation. So what is the outcome of your faith? Salvation for your souls. So you have to work at it. It is not enough to absorb the faith like a sponge and just sit on it. You have to show that your faith is permeating your entire life. Now, none of us can do that perfectly yet. But all of us can try. We can begin and begin again. We'll get up, we'll walk, we'll fall. We'll get up, we'll walk, we'll fall. Again and again and again. And so if you, have, if you have not gotten in the habit of your personal prayer, get on with it. 15 minutes, you can find 15 minutes a day. Don't tell me you can't. If I told you that if you were to sit quietly in a room, shut down the light for 15 minutes, and if you did it for a week, at the end of the week, you'd receive a check of $100,000, would you find the time? Would you find the time? See how hypocritical we can be? You see the hypocrisy built in us? Ah, oh, yeah, not that time. I'm busy. We're always busy. We have to work at it. All right. Let's get back to what we're supposed to be studying today. We, we need to focus today on the allegorical sense, the sense that pertains to Christ. Catechism of the Catholic Church 
Paragraph 101. In order to reveal himself to men in the condescension of his goodness, God speaks to them in human words. That means that God speaks to us in words we understand. If you understand what that verse means, you will never be shocked by anything you find in Scripture. Because you will understand that the purpose of Scripture is not to tell us what God ideally would like to tell us. It's never been the purpose of Scripture. The purpose of Scripture is to record the love of God to a wayward, stubborn, willful, disobedient kid who's running away from his father and his father won't give up on him. That's the purpose of Scripture. It shows us the depravity of men and the love of God. His mercy but also his severity. Both. It shows us how God is a father. Alright? If you have that perspective on scripture, you won't be shocked by what you read in it. You won't be bored by what you read in it. You'll see the love of the father. And I only hope that those of you who call to marriage understand this, that they will understand scripture through their children. For oftentimes, God's, God gives us children to make us understand His love. And the more children you have, the deeper your understanding of God is. And I can only, I only pray and I only pity those who were caught in the trap of thinking that two kids is enough. That's all we can handle. Now, I don't know why I went there, but I went there. Be it as it may. Indeed, the words of God expressed in the words of men are in every way like human language, just as the word of the Eternal Father, when he took on himself the flesh of human weakness, became like men. Therefore, we should not expect Scripture to, in one sense, be very different from the word of human being. Yet it is very different. Just as Christ looks like, a, like any other human being, it is much more than that. Right? Paragraph 102, through all the words of sacred scripture, God speaks only one single word, his one utterance in whom he expresses himself completely. So if I were to sum up all of scripture in one word, it would be Jesus. This is my beloved son. This is the summation of all of scripture. St. Bernard says, scripture is the face of Christ. St. Jerome Scripture is the heart of Christ. I would say to you that God spoke three words, or spoke his word three times. First, the second time is in Scripture. The third time is in the Incarnation. But the first time, the first Bible, the first book that God wrote is the universe. Why did God make this planet so beautiful? Why did he create all these variety of fish and plants and flowers and trees and stars and, and human beings and animals? Why did he do all that? Because he was bored? With nothing else to do? No, no, no. He made this so he can show us the beauty of his son. The whole of the universe speaks of the beauty of Jesus Christ. That's what the universe is. If you can see it liturgically, if you can see it 
sacrilege. With the eyes of the sacred, the universe indeed prays and sings the glory of God. That's how the ancient viewed the universe. So, the first meaning, the literal sense, is what the author intended to say in a particular condition. The, the, the allegorical sense, the first sense in a, in a spiritual sense, speaks to us of Christ. So, <clears throat> paragraph 117 of the Catechism, the allegorical sense. We can acquire a more profound understanding of events by recognizing their significance in Christ. A more profound understanding by, of, of events by recognizing their significance in Christ. Before we go any further, we need to understand what an allegory is. Why is it allegorical? Does this mean uh, untrue, unreal, imagined? An, an, an allegory is a sustained metaphor. It's a technique of creating or interpreting works of literature, art, and music so that they will convey more than one level of meaning simultaneously. Okay? More than one level of meaning simultaneously. So it's a figure of speech in which a word or phrase that ordinarily designates one thing is used to designate another. For instance, a sea of troubles. Obviously, a sea of trouble is not a real thing. There isn't out there a sea of troubles. But we use the image of a sea to represent big troubles, deep troubles. That's an allegory. So in Scripture, there are many meanings which are built in Scripture that speak of, at one level of something, but at another level of Christ. Now, the early Christians inherited from the Jews a tradition of seeing allegorical meaning in Scripture. So we can see continuation from the Jews to the Christians in understanding or reading Scripture allegorically. And St. Paul provides one of the clearest examples of this in Galatians. In the book of Galatians, chapter 4, verse 21 through 31, where he draws an analogy between the Old and New Covenant and Abraham's wife, Sarah, and Hagar. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the freeborn woman. Now here, he is going after the literal sense. It is written. There were two. Abraham had indeed two sons, one by Sarah and one by Hagar. Hagar. Isaac and Ishmael. That's a known fact. The son of the slave woman was born naturally, the son of the freeborn through a promise. We know that's the case. God came to Abraham and told him, I promise, I tell you, your, your wife will bring you a son. And that promise brought forth Isaac. And then, watch what St. Paul says. Now, this is an allegory. He uses the word himself. Right? These women represent two covenants. One was from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. This is Hagar. Hagar represents Sinai, a mountain in Arabia. It corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery along with her children. But the Jerusalem above is freeborn, and she's our mother. So he takes the literal sense, and now he draws an allegory. And that's in sacred scripture, inspired by the Holy Spirit. So we're not concocting some methodology that we came up with simply because we feel it's nice. St. Paul uses it, but the Lord himself uses it as well. In John chapter 3, verse 13 through 16, in speaking to Nicodemus, 
the Lord says, No one has gone up to heaven except the one who has come down from heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the desert, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. So, the literal event is that in Exodus, we're going to go back and look at this more closely, Moses lifted up a serpent. That's the literal event. Jesus takes that event and allegorically applies it to himself. Alright? Any question about the allegorical method of reading scripture? Right. So one thing we have to do as we read scripture is to make sure that we are careful to understand when we're reading it based on a literal sense and when we are actually going into an allegory and to understand the importance of both. And one needs to build on the other. What I would like to do now is give you some examples in Scripture where a text is allegorically speaking of Christ. And there's many, many of them, but I've drawn a couple of important ones. The first one I would like to point out to you is Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53. This is one of the most striking prophecy of the suffering of Christ in the Old Testament. When Isaiah wrote it, the literal sense, based on the context, applies to himself. Because Isaiah was persecuted by the priest in Jerusalem. They didn't want to hear what he had to say. They didn't like his message. So they, they basically blamed the, the fault of Israel and its problems on Isaiah. But it carries a much deeper meaning. Who would believe what we have heard? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up like a sapling before him, like a shoot from the parched earth. There was in him no stately bearing to make us look at him, no appearance that would attract us to him. He was spurned and avoided by men, a man of suffering, accustomed to infirmity. One of those from whom men hide their faces, spurned, and we held him in no esteem. Yet it was our infirmities that he bore, our sufferings that he endured. While we thought of him as stricken, as one smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our offenses, crushed for our sins. Upon him was the chastisement that makes us whole. By his stripes we were healed. We had all gone astray like sheep, each following his own way. But the Lord laid upon him the guilt of us all. Though he was harshly treated, he submitted and opened not his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, or a sheep before the shearers, he was silent and opened not his mouth. Oppressed and condemned, he was taken away, and who would have thought any more of his destiny, when he was cut off from the land of the living and smitten for the sin of his people? A grave was assigned to him among the wicked, and a burial place with evildoers, though he had done no wrong, nor spoken any falsehood. But the Lord was pleased to crush him in infirmity. If he, gives, if he gives his life as an offering for sin, he shall see his descendants in a long life, and the will of the Lord shall be accomplished through him. Because of his affliction, he shall see the light and fullness of days. Through his suffering, my servant shall justify many, and their guilt he shall bear. Therefore I will give him his portion among the great, and he shall divide the spoils with the mighty. Because he surrendered himself to death and was counted among the wicked, and he shall take away the sins of many and win pardon for their offenses. It's very evident. There's no, I'm not going to be commenting on this. I encourage you to reread it and read it and read it again and use it as a point of meditation. It's a beautiful, very powerful text. 
The next one I'd like to spend more time on is precisely the passage that I quoted, which is this business of the serpent. Now, in order to understand, the first thing we need to do is go back to the original text and read it in its context, and that's Numbers chapter 21, verse 4 through 9. So in Numbers chapter 21, verse 4 through 9, from Mount Hor, they set out on the Red Sea road to bypass the land of Edom, but with their, but with their patience worn out by the journey. The people complained against God and Moses. Why have you brought us up from Egypt to die in this desert? where there is no food or water. We are disgusted with this wretched food. Okay. Here's the deal. They're in the desert. It's hot in the desert. And there isn't much to do. Okay? They have to avoid the land of Edom so they don't have to war with the king of Edom. And they've been given manna. God gave them manna from, from heaven to eat. Their patience ran out. You notice, you notice that when we grumble against God, every time, without fail, our grumbling is rooted in immorality. It's our desire to move away from a moral life that makes us grumble about belief. You understand? Bishop Sheen puts it this way. People don't convert to the Catholic faith because of points of theology. They don't convert to the Catholic faith because they don't want to change their lifestyle. Put differently, people don't convert to the Catholic Church because really they have an issue with the Eucharist. This is the minority. People don't convert to the Catholic Church because they like contraception. That's why. Our problem is in the moral sphere more so than in the theological sphere. The two are inexorably linked they, because we're, we are one person and we can't split the way we believe from the way we live. They're both connected and one feeds the other. Only a schizophrenic can, in other words, a person who has double personality can on a Sunday put on the personality of somebody who believes, goes to church, sits in the pews, does the whole thing, and then as soon as he steps out of the church, he goes back to live like a pagan. Yet, many Catholics do precisely that. God is in the church, I go see him every Sunday, I don't really know why, but hey, I like my habits. As Saturday, I clean my car, clean my house, and Sunday I go to church. Mom, Dad said that we have to go, well, we'll go, okay. Because we have this vague religiosity about us. I don't really understand my faith. I don't know what the priest is doing. I have no clue what's going on, but I'll just go. But then once I'm done, I'm going to go live like a pagan. What do I mean by live like a pagan? Let me make it very, very clear. I live like a pagan when I use the name of the Lord in vain. Okay? I live like a pagan when I don't control what I'm watching on TV. When watching an R-rated movie with nudity and sex in it doesn't bother me. I live like a pagan when I never think twice about controlling my appetite. It's simple. Really. Not very complicated to live like a pagan. Pagans aren't monsters. They're very respectable citizens. Okay. So, they're in the land, uh, they're in the desert. And God gave them manna. And you know what? They're tired of it. They're impatient. So what did they do? They grumbled. 
the, the better word would have been murmured. They murmured. Now, we have a very different understanding of murmuring. We think murmuring, you know, is like whispering. They spoke very softly because they were afraid of saying what they had to say. Ah, murmuring is closer to plotting, to wanting to rebel. It's a rebellious attitude. Right? And now, listen carefully to what they say. They said, why have you brought us up from Egypt to die in this desert? Why have you brought us up from Egypt to die in this desert? So, what is God and, and Moses? Where are they? They're torturers. They're assassins. They're tyrants. They brought these people who were living in Egypt. And let me make that very clear to you. You remember the ten plagues, right? The ten plagues of Egypt? What was so peculiar about the ten plagues? Do you remember where the ten plagues did not hit? Which area of Egypt they did not hit? It's called Goshen. Every other area of Egypt was hit, except Goshen. Who lived in Goshen? No, not the Jews. Israelites. Let's go through the di distinction one more time. Don't use Jews and Israelites and Hebrews and thinking that it means the same thing. They don't. They don't. Not in biblical terms, they don't. Hebrews are descendant of Eber, the great, 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 great grandfather of Abraham, Eber. All the folks who descend from Eber are Hebrews, including the Arabs. They descend from Abraham, who descends from Eber, they're, they're Hebrews. It comes as a shock, but that's the fundamental truth. Israelites are descendant of Israel, right? Who's Israel? Jacob. So they're the 12 tribes of Israel. The 12 tribes come from the 12 sons of Jacob. Those are Israel. They're a subset of Hebrews. Who are the Jews? They're descendant of Judah, the fourth son, or the third or the fourth, I don't remember now exactly. The, fourth, the third or fourth son of Israel. So they're a subset of Israelites. Okay? Very important distinction. If you mix them up, you, you won't understand what's going on in, in, in the Gospels. Okay? So, the Israelites were in Goshen. So all of Egypt is destroyed. Their firstborn son is dead. The Israelites are doing great. What's the temptation then? Hey, why should we go to the desert? We stay right where we are. We take over. We like being in Egypt. It's really nice. You know, you live by the beach. You can go surfing. What, 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 the desert? You know, you're, you're a surf dude. You're living on the beach and somebody comes and says, hey, you know what? We're going to go live in the desert. Yeah, right. Sure. I can't, I can't wait. I'm going to run ahead of you, right? Okay, now you're in the desert. You're in the desert. The beach is still there. It's intact. It's like La Jolla has been emptied from the folks who were living there. You can go live there. You understand the temptation? You understand how powerful it is? 
Those guys have been decimated, but the homes are intact. You can go pick a house and live there. Instead, there's this bearded guy who's telling you, we're going to go in the desert. And oh, by the way, every day, you're going to get this manna thing that falls from heaven, and you're going to collect it and eat it. Every day. No shakes, no burger, no fries, no steak, no pizza, no pizza. You imagine that? No pizza, day in, day out. None. Zilch. Nada. It's worse than being on Atkins. I mean, I really want you to understand what they're going through. Because oftentimes we read scripture, yeah, yeah, sure, they murmured, whatever. We stay outside. We don't get ourselves in it. And until we do that, we don't understand what's going on. But put yourself in the shoes. You're in the desert. Sand, more sand, manna, more manna, water, more water. And there's all these, all these people out there who are after you. They're living fine. They're not living in a desert. You are. And they're after you. And you're wandering from place to place. How do you think you would react? Before you answer this question, let me answer this other question. How do you react when it gets, when it gets, when you have 60% humidity and it's 80 degrees in San Diego? You, of course, fall on your knees and you thank God for the hidden grace that he gave you to offer a little bit of suffering to him by showing you that this place is only temporary and you can only be happy in heaven, right? That's what you do right away. Right? And you keep a smile on your face and you go about doing your job whistling a nice tune. Forty years in the desert. No pizza. How do you think we would fare? Think about that. Not very good, right? Back to the text. Notice now. Why have you brought us up from Egypt to die in this desert where there is no food or water? We are disgusted with this wretched food. How does, the God, how does God respond? In punishment, the Lord sent among the people seraph serpents which bit the people so that, they, so that many of them died. Okay. Isn't that a little bit harsh? One principle of understanding Scripture is truthfulness. We can't have this sort of false piety. Well, you know, God is good and God can't be wrong and he did this, so therefore they probably deserved it. I really don't know why. I think it's really harsh. But somehow, somewhere, they deserve it. That's not going to get you very far, is it? We have to be very honest with God and say, okay, Lord, I think it was harsh. I don't agree with you. That's how you enter into a dialogue with him. That's how you battle back and forth with God. Just as, Isaiah, just as Israel battled with the angel. You have to do that in order for God to give you the graces you need to understand his word. To help you understand this, let me put it this way. Suppose that instead of complaining the way they did, 
they would have went on a rampage and started killing every baby under the age of two. Would you think that the punishment would be appropriate? Would it, would it be more acceptable? It would be, right? So the reason why we think that the punishment is not appropriate is because we think it is disproportionate with what they did, right? In other words, we don't think that the punishment is just because it seems to be disproportionate with what they did. You agree with me? Okay. And here's one fundamental principle of biblical interpretation. When you hit that point, what you need to remind yourself of is, oh, so therefore, since I'm thinking that there's something wrong with God or with Scripture or with both, the proper conclusion is there's something wrong with me. My perspective is not what it needs to be. You understand? As soon as you do that, you're in good shape. Scripture is a mirror. It shows you yourself if you want to see it. Why am I saying that? Because our morality, our sense of what is right, is dulled, has been dulled by the way we live. Let me go back to my example. I told you that the punishment would be more appropriate if they had actually went ahead and killed a bunch of little babies, right? Okay, now let me ask you this question. Babies under the Old Covenant, unbaptized babies, unbaptized babies, right? They're fundamentally under the curse because they don't have the grace of God in them, right? They look cute on the outside, but on the inside, they are cursed like everybody else who is not, who is under the curse of original sin, right? That is, that is objective reality. That's not what our senses are telling us, but that's objective reality. Now, if we, we say that injustice brought upon those who are under the curse of original sin deserves death, how much more an injustice against the one who is truly holy. What does that deserve? Do you understand my point? My point is that if we understand the holiness of God, the absolute holiness of God, we would recognize that the punishment is actually mild. Why? After the fall of Adam, God owed us nothing. You understand that? God didn't owe us to save us. He doesn't owe us that. It's pure mercy on His part that He extends salvation to us, right? So here you have a guy who is in debt. He's $10 billion in debt. And he makes two bucks a day. Okay? There's no way in a lifetime you're ever to be able to repay the debt, right? This other guy shows up and says, okay, you're in debt. You're so in debt that you can't pay. I'm going to take that debt on my shoulder. I'm going to take your debt. Okay? And I'd like you to live according to my rule, which will lead you to eternal salvation. What do you think the appropriate answer should be? Whatever you say, right? 
will do whatever you say, right? Now what if you promised? What if you swore an oath that you will do whatever he says? And what if you broke it? That's what we're dealing with here. They made an oath. Whatever the Lord says, we will do. And Moses ratified the oath by sprinkling blood on them and on the altar. And here they are, wanting to go back to Egypt. Okay? It'd be like a guy who was, who, who lived uh, such a life that he contracted AIDS. And God came to him and saved him, restored him to health, and brought him into a marriage. And now that he's in a marriage, he curses the name of God every time his wife gives him direction on the highway. Why did you give me this wife that can't be quiet when I'm driving? Does this make more sense? Wouldn't you want serpents to come and bite him when he does that? I'd say that uh, perhaps those of you who are of the female gender may agree with me on this one. Okay. That's what we're dealing with here. You see how we have to understand Scripture? We have to stop. We have to think. We have to really, really put ourselves in our shoes and strive to ask God to show us His grace, His holiness, so we understand who He is and who we are. Now, that's what happened. Okay. Now they're bitten by serpents. It's medicinal. Why? They get back to their senses. Go back to Moses. We have sinned in complaining against the Lord and you. Pray the Lord to take the serpents from us. Notice the intercession of the saint. Moses is a saint. They know that their prayer will not be heard. But they know Moses will be heard. So Moses prayed for the people and the Lord said to Moses, and that gets really interesting. The Lord said to Moses, Make a seraph and mount it on a pole, and if anyone who has been bitten looks at it, he will recover. Now, make a seraph, make a serpent of bronze, mount it on a pole, and when they look at it, they are saved. Now, if you don't think that either God is on crack, or the one who wrote that is on crack, you're missing the point. I mean, think about it for a second. You're Moses. You go to God. And you say, please stop that. What would you expect the answer to be? Okay, I'll stop it. It's done. Make a serpent of bronze. Put it on a pole. When they look at it, they're saved. Huh? What's up with God? Why does he want him to do that? Makes no sense, does it? Isn't it strange? I mean, if you, if you were God, would you do that? Would you ask him to make a serpent of bronze and put it on the pole? Go tell somebody who's been bitten. Okay? All you've got to do is look at the serpent over there and you're healed. What do you think he's going to say to you? you? You've been bitten. Okay? Or, or perhaps let me put it to you this way. You're really sick. And I say to you, look at the tabernacle and you'll be healed. Oftentimes in Scripture, the literal sense cannot be fully explained apart from the cross. It is the cross that is the center of Scripture, and the cross gives meaning to Scripture. And that's what Jesus meant. You see, the serpent is of bronze. So it looks like a serpent, but it, it has a completely different nature. Just as Christ on the cross, as Isaiah said, looked like one who was a sinner, but his nature was completely different. And everyone who looks 
at him. And looking doesn't mean glancing. Looking means looking, desiring, wanting to. That's what looking means. Everyone who looks at him will be saved. You see how the allegorical sense helps us to illuminate the literal sense and why it actually does make sense? Because God is already teaching his people about his son. He's catechetically preparing them to understand and recognize the son when he comes. And he is helping us see the Lord in scripture. Adam as a type of Christ. The Lord, the Lord God, Genesis 2-7, the Lord God formed man out of the clay of the ground and blew into his nostrils the breath of life, and so man became a living being. Now we can all associate with that, that God created Adam from dust. Now whether he did it directly or through evolution, I don't really care. Eventually, he took something that goes back to dust, one way or the other, and he did something supernatural. He put in a supernatural soul, an immortal soul. That's an important element here. That we can put up with. Now watch the way he creates Eve. Here we go again. The Lord God cast a deep sleep on the man, and while he was asleep, he took out one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh, and then he fashioned Eve out of the rib of man. Again, we're so used to the text that we don't see how strange it is. If you were to create Eve out of Adam, would you take a rib? Why a rib? But why not the heart? Why not a piece of the heart? Why not a piece of the brain? Pardon? Well, not to rule over him. I mean, you know, that's, that's our explanation today. But deep down, why the, why the rib? From his side, but okay, but why from his side? Why not from his back? Bingo. The church is the bride of Christ, right? When was the church born? The church was born when Christ was asleep. Where? On the cross. How? When the legionary pierced his side and water and blood flowed. That's the birth of the church. This is explained by that. This is done in preparation of that. You see how it works? No. He was dead right before. And then, right, to be dead is to be in a deep sleep. It's a, it's a Hebraism, it's a Hebraic expression to say someone is dead. So casting Adam in a deep sleep is really putting Adam to death, so to speak. And, and, and allegorically bringing him back to life. Right? He woke him up and he recognized his bride. Flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone. And that's what Christ says about the church. The church is flesh of his flesh, bone of his bone. You think I'm exaggerating? I'm saying more. The, the church is his bride. It is he and the church are one flesh. You think I'm exaggerating? What is the Eucharist? What are we nourished with? We're made one in the Lord. Right? Okay. One more. Christ is the rock. Here we go again, another one of those interesting passages in Exodus. Exodus 17, 1 through 6. From the de desert of Sin, the whole Israelite community journeyed by stages as the Lord directed and encamped at Rephidim. Here there was no water for the people to drink. So there's no water. Right? What do we know? No pizza, no burger, no fries, no shakes. No water. Now that's much worse, right? 
They quarreled, therefore, with Moses. Here we go again. They quarreled. That's what we do with God, right? When things don't go our way, what do we do? Instead of getting on our knees and praying, we... How come the Lord did this to me? I don't deserve that type of attitude. Here, here we go again. Give us water to drink. Mo Moses said, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to a test? Here we go again. Here then, here then in their search for water, the people grumbled against Moses saying, why did you ever make us leave Egypt? See, it's one thing to get Israel out of Egypt. It's another thing to get Egypt out of Israel. Okay? It's one thing to get us out of, out of TV. It's another thing to get the TV out of us. We have our own Egypt. Why is, was it just to have, us, to have us die here of thirst with our children and our livestock? Here we go again, accusing Moses of being murderer. So Moses cried out to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? A little more and they will stone me. Right, You've got to have devotion for Moses. I mean, imagine what he had to do. He had to carry all these people for all these years, and all they do is grumble and complain about him and the Lord. All right, so the Lord answered Moses, Go over there in front of the people, along with some of the elders of Israel, holding in your hand as you go the staff with which you struck the river. I will be standing there in front of you on the rock in Horeb. Strike the rock, and the water will flow from it for the people to drink. This Moses did in the presence of the elders of Israel. The place was called Massa and Meribah, because the Israelites poured there and tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord in our midst or not? Okay, they're thirsty. If you are God, and I'm coming to you and saying the people are thirsty, what would you say? What would you suggest we do? The well, right? Strike the, the, you know, the ground, and where you strike the ground, let them dig, and they'll get water. Isn't that more in line with physics? Okay, what's up with God wanting Moses to strike a rock? Okay? Now, it gets more interesting. Numbers 21 through 12. Here we go again. They're grumbling. They don't have water. They're grumbling again. Same deal. Same situation. Repeating. Numbers 21 through 12. Now, this time, listen to what the Lord says. He says, Take the staff and assemble the community, you and your brother Aaron, and in their presence, in their presence, order the rock to yield its waters. From the rock you shall bring forth water to the community and their livestock to drink. Moses took the staff from its place before the Lord as he was ordered. They assembled the community. And he said, Listen to me, you rebels. Okay? Not very happy lad, Moses, right? He had it with them. Listen to me, you rebels. Are we to bring water for you out of this rock? Then raising his hand, Moses struck the rock twice with his staff, and water gushed out in abundance. What did God told him to do? Order. What did he do? Big deal. Okay. I mean, okay, he, he took his staff and bam, bam, on a big hunk of rock. All right, that's what he did. Notice God's answer. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you were not faithful to me in showing forth my sanctity before the Israelites, you shall not leave this community to the land I will give them. That's why Moses could not enter the promised land. Because he struck a rock twice. And instead of ordering it. Now here we go again. Do you think God is just? Oh, come on. I mean, poor Moses. He put up with all these people for 40 years. Carrying them. Complaining, mumbling and grumbling. Multiple times they accused him of being a criminal. They wanted him dead. And he put up with all of them all this time. And for once he's so frustrated he hits the, a rock. 
We're not talking hitting a person or a tree. I mean, it's environmentally safe, after all, hitting a rock. You're not going to hurt it, are you? If anything, he hurt himself. And God tells him, because you've done that, you don't enter the promised land. Woo! What's up with God? Why? Why? Okay. He, yeah, he wants obedience, but come on. I mean, you know, he could have told Moses, I don't know, you know, ten push-ups or something. Right? I mean, something a little bit more appropriate. You don't enter the promised land because you hit a rock twice? Woo! Okay. Ah, that's a good question. He ordered and he struck twice. How come water came out? Bear, keep that in mind. Keep that in mind. Now, St. Paul. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 4. 1, the first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 10, 1 through 4. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and all passed to the sea. And all of them were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from a spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was the Christ. The allegorical reading of St. Paul on the event is that the rock was the Christ, was Jesus Christ. The rock was Jesus Christ. Okay? Let that thing sink in for a second. And now let me ask you this question. Jesus, when he spoke to the woman at the well, told her what? Woman, if you knew who is speaking to you, you would ask him and he would give you, say that again, living water. Jesus applies this to himself as well. Okay. Let me ask you this question. When was Christ struck and water came from him? On the cross. Right? On the cross, Christ was struck once and water flowed. Right? For us. You're with me? What does the priest do during Mass? Does he strike Christ again? No. What does he do? He speaks the words of consecration and we have living water. Okay? You see the inside of St. Paul? It's the Mass. The priest speaks the words of consecration and we have living water. That's the allegorical sense of that passage. One last point. Moses was punished because he did not show forth God's sanctity. Meaning that he gave the wrong understanding of who God is and his sanctity. Notice, sanctity, not mercy, love, compassion, sanctity. And that is why it is our duty to pray for our priests because God is asking them nothing less. They are commanded when they speak the word to show His sanctity. When they speak the word of consecration, they are bringing forth the sanctity of God among us. But they have to bring forth the sanctity of God through the entire liturgy, through the Mass. We have to pray for them so that they can 
bring forth and that through them Christ will show, will unveil, will reveal His sanctity to us in the Mass. By the same token, every single one of us in our lives have the same duty, has the same duty. In our lives, we are commanded to do the same. There's no exception and there's no excuse. Was Moses? No. Did, he, did Moses know about the crucifixion? And that, No. At least Moses can be excused because after all, he didn't have the seven sacraments. He didn't have baptism. He didn't have confession. He didn't have the Eucharist to strengthen him. What is our excuse? What is our excuse? So the allegorical sense then, and you can see we can spend a lot more time on it, but we can't. What I hope you are now beginning to see is that as you approach Scripture, you read a passage, and you, in a very disciplined way, you focus first on the literal sense, and you really have to work at understanding it in its context. Then, you can then ask yourself this question, how does this apply to Christ? And in a very conscientious way, you try to see how it applies to Christ, how it reveals Christ, and how it does so in the fullness of Scripture and of tradition. And in so doing, we get to know Christ more as He wants us to know Him, and we grow in His love, and He in His turn will fulfill His promise in us to bring us to eternal life. God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.